Hear the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to look at our Savior and his life and what we learn about him, Lord, help us to be open Some of what we learn about Christ can be challenging. If we are honest with ourselves, we may learn things that are uncomfortable. Lord, help us to embrace that, that we can grow and we can change, we can become more and more like Christ. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes things happen that are kind of shocking, Uh, things that you maybe would never have imagined happening, things that show some of the uncertainty and the insanity of the world in which we live and in the world in which we have to live out our lives day to day. Um, I read about one this week. I'm Something sold for over $4 million. I would like you to meet what sold for $4 million. That cow right there, that white cow with the large hump, sold for approximately $4.3 million. It is the most expensive cow in history. No other cow has sold for that much money before. Um, When I saw the 4.3 in even the title, I'm like, I wonder what that is. I could not believe it was a Brazilian cow. Um, It just didn't seem like that made a lot of sense to me. Um, There there are things that I can imagine that kind of money being spent on, but I don't know about a cow. Um, And I know it's a very special cow. It's been bred for very special reasons, and it has all kinds of immunities and other things. And so, but it's $4.3 million. (laughs) Um, And... As I thought about that, and I thought about how crazy that felt to me, I thought, isn't our lives kind of like that? Crazy? Do you ever feel like there are just multiple things you cannot control going on around you, in you, with you? Um, How in the midst of all of the craziness do you have real impact? How do you not get lost in the craziness and let that end up overwhelming you? I mean, you've ever just kind of gone, I'm done. You just kind of give up. I'm just going to sit here. I can't take it anymore. 
Um, how do you not let the craziness and the uncertainty become overwhelming and still make an impact in life? That's our topic this week and next week. And the way we're going to answer the question is by asking this. How did Jesus do it? His life was nuts. Um, nobody in the beginning would have bet on him. I mean, you even get, as we've covered before, what is said about him. What good can come from Nazareth? I mean, nobody was betting on this guy. And yet, in the midst of all of the craziness and the insanity and the things he can't control, he has an incredible impact that we are still feeling today. What can we learn from him that might help us in our craziness still have an impact? Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. It's on page 1425. Mark chapter 1. We are beginning in verse 29. You remember last week he went to the synagogue in Capernaum, which is the place that he likely lived when his ministry started. And it's the synagogue that you can still go to and still walk on that floor and see. And he preached there, and he had preaching that had authority, and he casted out demons, showing the kingdom of God was here. This is what happens next, as Mark keeps telling the story. Verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Uh, this home is in Capernaum and is only a few hundred feet away. Um, when you stand in the synagogue, you can look right over and see where Peter's home was. Peter and, and Andrew, brothers. And, and the home was set up the way these cities were often set up, villages were often set up, is you'd have multiple small homes all surrounding a courtyard and then a single entrance into that courtyard. Likely, Jesus spent a lot of time in that courtyard teaching his disciples. Later on in the scene, when they come to the door or the gate, they're probably coming to the gate of that courtyard. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. Um, and the way it's written, it almost sounds like maybe she wasn't when they left. Um, like something has happened, or it wasn't this bad. So they get back, and this is the Sabbath, by the way. They would have expected to return to the house and have a Sabbath meal ready. And instead they get back, and it's like they walk in, and the mother-in-law is not there. Um, in case you weren't aware, it looks like Simon Peter was married. A number of Jesus' brothers were married. A number of the other disciples were married. Um, we see a number of this in 1 Corinthians, and we get some stuff here um, with Simon's mother-in-law. So they come in expecting a meal, and instead, they find her apparently even unable to stand up. She's in bed with a fever. Do you remember the last time you had a fever that was so bad you just wanted to do nothing but lay there? And the way the fever makes you, in one moment, you have to kick every blanket off because you are so hot that even the bed beneath you, you want to get off of. And then the next moment, you have to put so many blankets on you because you're freezing with chills. She's there. And in their time, they often thought fevers were punishments by God for sin. So there's a number of things that could be going on in the minds of the disciples right now. 
Immediately they told Jesus about her. So they've been around him for a little while now. They've heard his teaching. They've seen him cast out demons. Jesus, she's got a fever. Um, Whether or not they expect him to do anything, they're hoping. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Um, This would have been an incredible miracle for them to witness. There is something so tangible and obvious about her fever, about what she's feeling there. They know it's real, and Jesus walks over and takes her hand and says, stand up. And the fever is gone. And you can imagine them going, oh my gosh. Like this guy is just, he keeps, it's incredible. And then something happens that, I don't know, to me, it's kind of weird. So again, go back to the last time you had a fever. Mine actually was recently. Because as you guys might remember, a couple of people in my family got COVID. And I got a fever for maybe six hours or so. Do you know what I felt like after that? (laughs) I felt terrible. Like it drains you. So she is so bad, she's in bed, unable to do the Sabbath meal. And then right afterwards, she began to wait on them. Now, if I'm in that scene, I can tell you what I think I'm doing. Whoa, stop. Like, it's okay. We can help out with this meal. Um, You just had this experience. I know you're healed. Um, I know it's complete. But still, you went through a lot. Why don't you let me step in and, like, help out a little bit? And Jesus does nothing. He just lets her do it. And here's why I think that is true. Here's why I think it happens. Jesus is tired. He's worn out. So you all know as your pastor, I work one day a week, but it's really hard. Well, it's a half day, and it's really hard. I put a lot of effort into this one day that I work. Don't tell Patty I only work one day a week. She might cut my pay. One day a week, really hard. And When you preach and you minister, when you get home, you're tired. Like for me, preaching, it is intellectual and physical, but it's also very emotional. And like you pour everything in and you are praying and hoping and and, and like you get home and you just want to sit down. Jesus preached all morning along with casting out demons. He's tired. And this isn't the first time. Do you remember the woman at the well? It's a famous passage out of John 4 where Jesus meets up. This woman comes and what Jesus is doing is he's sitting on the well because he's tired, John tells us. He's worn out. Jesus, as a human being, knows his limitations. Hear that. He knows his own limitations. There's a point where the disciples come to Jesus and they go, hey, There is some guy daring to cast demons out in your name, and he's not with us. It's like copyright infringement or, you know, some other gang. Like, this is our group. And Jesus goes, no, let him. Don't stop him. We've got so much work to do. If somebody's going to cast demons out in my name, let him cast demons out in my name. Jesus knows 
The work to be done requires a lot, and he alone can't do it. Throughout his ministry, there's numerous opportunities where he is utilizing his disciples. Whether it's sending them out two by two, or in the midst of doing ministry, at one point he turns to his disciple because they're complaining about all these people that need to be fed. Thousands of them. And Jesus goes, well, why don't you give them something to eat? Jesus is constantly trying to draw people into ministry. Why? Because the ministry requires more than what Jesus, the human being, can do. He knows his limitations. I believe the first thing we need to know about Christ, the reason he can keep his sanity in this insane world, the reason he can continue to have an impact, no matter how overwhelming things might get, he knows his own limitations. And he takes the time to rest. He takes the time to involve other people in the ministry. He takes the time to get away. He knows his limitations. Do you know yours? I want to ask you a series of questions just to see how you might respond. Uh, to do it in your own mind. Um, try and be honest with yourself. Do you have an accurate view of your own abilities, of how time works, of situations that you're in? How about of the plans you have for the future? Do you consistently seek to accomplish more than your abilities or time would allow? Do you regularly seek to control situations you realize you actually have no hope of controlling? Do the inaccurate view you have on your own limitations keep you from serving in ways because you're so worn down? That you can't just serve. I have a series of about 20 of these. I'm not going to keep asking them. But I had to go through my own life and go, where am I not recognizing my limitations? And it typically comes out in me trying to do too much. In me not recognizing when I'm tired of me not paying attention to time and thinking I can accomplish so much more that I've actually stepped back and went, oh my gosh, I can't do all of this. What am I doing? We need an accurate view of our limitations or it leads to too much pressure, failings, anger, bitterness, all kinds of things. Um, a number of years ago, back in college actually, um, I had a lot of books but not a lot of space, because where I lived didn't have a lot of space. And I thought the best thing I could do would be to build a bookshelf that would go over my desk, and I could put all my books on it, I could put my printer on it, and that would save space. And considering I took sixth grade shop, I knew how to do this. <laughs> So I grabbed some wood and some nails and some paint and I slapped that thing together and made it all beautiful and white and I put it up. And it was wonderful until I started putting books on it. <laughs> At which point it already just started to bow a little bit. And I thought, no, nah, it's just character. <laughs> and then I put the printer on it. And that was okay too until the first time, remember this is years ago, um, printers don't print nicely 40 years I guess it's not 40, I guess 30 years ago. They kind of jiggle a whole lot. Um, and it would start jiggling, 
the entire bookcase would move and start spitting books out at me. Um, I really thought I had this because I had an inaccurate view of my limitations. Do you know your limitations? Jesus did. And you can apply this by beginning to ask yourself those questions. What are my strengths and weaknesses? How much time do I really have? What's really important to me that I need to get done? Because I cannot do it all. I cannot respond to every single person. I have to say no sometimes. Because if you do not do these things, you will be overwhelmed and the insanity will win and you will not have the impact you want to have. Know your limitations. Here's the second thing we see in Jesus. Keep reading, verse 32. That evening, after sunset, because they had to wait for the Sabbath to end, but boy, the Sabbath ends, and Jesus has had this morning, and then he gets a Sabbath meal, maybe some rest, and Sabbath ends, and boy, they are there. They brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let them speak because they knew who he was. It's interesting in the scriptures that despite the fact that a lot of people will say, you know, these were just naive, barbaric people who didn't know much. Um, there's a consistency where they differentiate between sickness and demon possession. They did not believe that every time you were sick, it's because you were possessed by a demon. They actually did believe people got sick, but they also believed in demon possession. But the two things were separate. And you see Jesus here, as it describes, he heals diseases and he casts out demons. Distinct things. On top of that, at the end it says he would not let the demons speak. Because he knew what they were going to say. Every time demons meet up with Jesus and they're allowed to say anything, it often has something to do with wanting to say who he is. And Jesus is silencing them. You will not do that. And we're never told exactly why. The theories are, and here they are. Number one, would you want a demon being the thing that announces who you are? It's not the best messenger. Not only that, later on, the religious leaders actually say to Jesus, you are working for Satan. How else could you be casting out demons? Well, if the demons are like, hey, this is Jesus, it kind of fits into that whole plan. Number two, the demons, when they announce, they have no idea what the plan of Christ is. When they start saying, hey, it's the Son of God, hey, it's this, everybody listening, they've got an idea of what that means. But it's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus wants to be able to talk about the kingdom and what he's come to do. Not just have it announced. And then number three, I think you see this. The more word gets out before he can spread the word, the more crowds are surrounding him to the point that it won't, he can't even go to a town at one point. There's so many people. We don't know the exact reason, but here's what we do know. Not only did Jesus know his limitations, he knew his enemies. Jesus knows his enemies. He knows what is sickness because of sin, and he knows what is demon possession. 
He knows what the demons want to do even before they do it, and so he stops them. You are not going to speak. I know your plans. I know what you're about. I'm going to make sure I get to do my plans. He knows his enemies. Do you know yours? And you have them. Um, I think very often the way in which we tackle life is not the right way. Uh, I'm going to read you another series of questions. And then I'll describe what I mean. Do we know our enemies or even those who might try to stop us or stand in the way? Do we just get angry at people who do, not, who do what we consider to be dumb or inconsiderate? Or do we try to understand them so we can better handle situations? Do we understand that the devil is real, that our flesh is real, that our sinful ways are real, and take that into account? Do we understand the ways that we can be our own worst enemy? Do we take into account our own faults, idiosyncrasies, our past baggage that might make us our own worst enemy? How often do we attack people through assumptions without knowing the truth? How often do we actually know our enemies, those opposed to us, and how often do we just work off of our assumptions? Because assumptions are so dangerous. They hurt people, relationships, and impact. You cannot accomplish what God wants you to accomplish if you do not know your enemy well. And here's what I think ends up happening. So throughout history, throughout most of human history, fevers were seen as a terrible, awful disease. It reminded me, I had to ask my daughter this this morning, um, because I was thinking about my sermon, and I suddenly, on the way here to church, it reminded me of something that she said when she was younger. Um, she was sleeping, she was moaning and making noises, and my wife and I woke her up to find out what was wrong, and uh, she told us that her feet went to the sun. She had a massive fever, and she understood it as her feet going to the sun. And, and we've just never forgotten that phrase. Um, because fevers are something that are so miserable. And, and yet, what do we know about fevers today? They point to the actual enemy, right? We're not really trying to just treat a fever. In fact, sometimes you can't treat the fever because you need to know if you have one. you got to take it first to even know. But then we're trying to figure out what's wrong. And yet, throughout most of history, people don't like fever, this is Howard Markle, the director of the Center for the History of Medicine, a professor of pediatrics and diseases at the University of Michigan. Going back to Hippocrates, people had the conception that fever was the disease itself, rather than, say, salmonella or influenza or some form of organism. Nobody even knew about microbes, so fever was considered the disease. Very often you tended to have an actual infectious disease that killed you. That's one reason why fever was terrifying. Evidence from these moments is everywhere. Even in 18th, 19th century papers, they're cluttered with ads for tonics promising to cure fever because fever was what was mentioned in obituaries as killing people. They were constantly fighting the wrong enemy because it's the only enemy they knew. Are we doing the same? 
if you don't fight the right enemy, you'll never have the right victory. In fact, you end up just bringing pain on yourself. We do it all the time. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody, been hurt, and at the end found out that what you were arguing about wasn't even the right thing? Like they didn't mean what they said, what you thought they meant, or vice versa, and the entire thing just didn't need to happen. I'm going to mention something I wasn't planning on mentioning. Um, my family and I are watching Cobra Kai. Um, if, if you haven't ever seen it, you should watch it if you watch The Karate Kid, because it's really good. Um, and it deals a ton with relationships. And the last couple episodes we watched, my 10-year-old son, he keeps saying, they're all dumb. Like, the adults are dumb, the kids are dumb, they're just all dumb. Because they are all fighting over things that if they actually just sat down and talked, were there actual things that hurt them? Yes. Nobody's perfect. We hurt each other. But the things they're doing are the result primarily of not communicating and assuming motivations and everything else. They're just dumb. Don't be dumb. Know your enemy. Communicate. It can change everything if you do. So, what Jesus knew, he knew his limitations, he knew his enemy, and it helped him not become insane in the insanity of the world and amidst all those things he couldn't control, knowing those things also allowed him to have the kind of impact we see him having. It can do the same for us. I'm going to end with a picture. I don't know what you see there, um, but this was a vase that Jessica Vinson found in Virginia at a Goodwill store in June of 2023. She would go often with her mom to the Goodwill store, and she found this vase, and she thought, this looks like something that is more valuable than what it appears to be. And so she picked up the vase, explored it, took it up. She thought, I bet they're going to want, you know, 10 bucks or something for this. And they charged her $3.99 for the vase. She got it home, and she joined a Facebook page for vase and pottery and glassware and and got this on there, and a number of people said, you need to have this checked out. This looks like something much more than what you think it is. And she began to think, maybe this is worth like 500 bucks or something. Ultimately, this was sculpted in, or done in the 1940s by a famous Italian glassmaker. And it sold for $10,000. When she found out its value... It completely changed everything. And she said in an interview, I just wanted to get it out of my house before I broke it. <laughs> Knowing how much it was worth, I just knew somehow I was going to chip it, break it. It was going to fall off a shelf, something. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Did I say $10,000? $100,000 is what it sold for. $100,000. I know. It looks like you should just fill it up with Diet Coke or something. I'm knowing, as I remember from a kid in G.I. Joe, is half the battle. But then you got to do something with the knowledge. Know your limitations, know your enemy. 
See what God can do with that when you take it seriously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be more aware, more introspective. Help us to be more authentic and genuine and honest with ourselves about our attitudes, about how we judge others and ourselves, about what's going on inside of us that we might be more cognizant of real limitations in our lives and the real enemies in our lives that we can approach all these things in healthy ways that will let us have a greater impact in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.